it's not just educating people because it's fun, which that is the main idea. But yeah, you know, juries are made up of the public. And there are cases where the jury's misconceptions about what forensics should or shouldn't be able to do, like, has led to unfortunate scenarios. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Forensic anthropology overlaps with many other areas of forensics, and as we'll learn today, it was pretty important in a few recent events. My guest today is Evan Bird. Now, Evan is a forensic anthropologist, and he also teaches forensic anthropology. We'll hear some good tips for people interested in this field, and he'll talk about his work with local and federal agencies. And we'll also learn about his Instagram page, The Corpse Review, where he uses forensics to critique horror movies. All right, here's Evan Bird. So today we're going to talk a lot about forensic anthropology, which is your uh, field. But I want to kind of go, let's go back to the beginning of that story for you. And I'm curious, how how did that begin? How did you become interested in anthropology? So I think that my kind of path to doing this sort of thing might be a little different than other people's. I was not like originally an anthropology person who then drifted towards the forensic thing. I actually remember the the minute the moment i found out forensic anthropology was a thing a friend of mine had talked me into taking like intro to anthropology just to, for the like the credits that you need right oh sure yeah and so when we then got to and i i was not particularly fond of all the sociocultural stuff and then the biological anthropology element of it was like, oh, okay, cool, talking about you know evolution and, and the skeleton and stuff and all that. And then I didn't have a major at the time. Um, I actually started school as a fine arts major because the only interests I had were like maybe trying to wind up doing you know special effects makeup or something, which obviously is sort of ironic and what we'll talk about later, but. Or like I for a little bit thought I maybe wanted to be a tattoo artist. And then I realized I hate drawing (laughs) Um, and it makes me feel very anxious. (laughs) So I went to like, uh, it wasn't, you know, career day, but it was like major day. Like it was where like different departments are trying to convince uh, people without a major. And during a presentation by the anthropology department, one of the professors had a slide that and I, I kind of can like picture it in my mind still, which I mean we're talking like sixteen years ago or something, or longer. Um, and it just said forensic anthropology and had like uh, you know like a profile of a schematic of a cranium with osteometric points and calipers. And I like that moment was like whatever that is, where you're measuring skulls and stuff, and it's in tied in with forensic somehow. I want to know more about this. When I was actually really young, when I was like 10, we, I remember in fifth grade, we had to do a book report on like a career that interests me. And I did forensic scientist. And looking back, it was nothing accurate. Like I was basically describing what I understood from the X-Files, like the TV show. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's what I saw for some reason thought being a forensic scientist was. Okay. But so you go forward and then in time and yeah forensic anthropology i uh i had a when i was younger i had some really 
unusual medical experiences with my skeleton. And so skeletal anatomy was always like this underlying just like fixation of mine. And then I found out like, oh, these things all come together. And like many, you know, people uh, in forensics, I feel like, you know, it's not like I was the least morbid person ever on earth as a kid. So I already had some attraction to all of that. And then learning that there's this skeletal element of it. um, That's just exactly what I decided I wanted to do. So then I majored in, you know, doing a Bachelor of Science in anthropology towards that direction. And it that's just basically all I ever wanted to do was look at skeletons. Did you ever, like, as you, as you were going along, like, through school or even maybe shortly after, like, question that you went into the right field? Or did you, did you know right away that that's, was it, that was the right choice? For me personally, like I was saying, there wasn't really ever something else I wanted to do. It wasn't like, oh, I have to decide between this and, you know, law school or something. I don't know. It was always just like, yeah, this seems like what I'm supposed to be doing, dealing with forensics and skeletons. Um, As far as like second guessing things, the element of like, you know, am I going to, what's a a career going to be like doing this or getting a job and doing all that, you know, that can be at times a bit daunting. And I remember um, even being in grad school wondering, like, am I like, what are the actual options going to be? And so, you know, there's times like that. But as far as like, yeah, like I said, it's, it's never that like, oh, man, I should have been a dentist or something like that. It was always just, you know, bones for me, basically. I guess I guess I can understand that a little bit. Now, as far as when when you were in school and obviously teachers and professors and things, did you have like certain mentors back then that sort of helped guide you along this path? So in school, yes, but it was a little odd for me. When I was an undergraduate um, at Rutgers, I like I said, I was immediately into it. I wanted to do a Bachelor of Science in Anthropology, which you can do there. And I was, you know, one of the students who was more vocal about, you know, I'm going to do an honors thesis. I want to go to grad school. And so the professors certainly took me seriously, but they were also very much like, look, none of us does forensic stuff. Like, you're kind of, you're going to have to figure some, like, we'll help you however we can. But they couldn't, like, guide me directly in certain ways. So, like, when I was younger, again, at, at Rutgers, um, Rob Scott was always a very big influential person. For He helped me a lot. Um, and then later at NYU, there, there, obviously, I've had professors who are helpful in, like, it's almost like putting together different pieces to make something else when I guess you go about it that way. So, like, having people who are very helpful when it come, came to learning skeletal anatomy or fragmentary osteology or just how to go about approaching something that it, it's not an ev- obvious path of how to do it. So something that I often tell students when they talk about wanting to um, maybe go into this, it's like, you know, you kind of have the uh, acknowledgement that it's, and this isn't in any way like um, uh, meant in a negative way towards other types of careers, but it's not like becoming like, let's say a nurse or a teacher, 
in that, it's not like there's obvious steps that you can ask, oh, what do I do to become this thing? When you want to go in one of some of these forensic paths, especially if you're not a, a completely specialized program, you kind of have to figure things out on your own. Maybe that's helpful later on in that you have this experience of like, you know, complete confusion of what am I supposed to do here? But yeah, I mean, it's it's always helpful to have these sort of people that even if they're not directly telling you, oh, do this, 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 and this, and then boom, at the end, you're a professional, you know, forensic anthropologist or whatever, that they can still kind of give you some guidance on the way. And even as a, you know, professional, I still have people who are, you know, kind of mentors. When I was in grad school, I became friends with several people who, to this day, are very, um, I guess you could say influential and helpful to me as as friends, like um, like in the anthropology world, like Chris Rainwater, Nick Pasolacqua, Gina Hart. They've all been people who are I mean, are friends of mine, but I still, you know, they're they're always happy to like help me, kind of think something through or um, or approach things in in whatever way, and that's I guess just through. You know, when people, another thing that I tell students is like the idea of the word networking, right? When we hear the word networking, you kind of think like, well, I'm not in business school. Why am I even hearing this word? You know what I mean? Like, it seems almost like yeah, a, uh-huh. it's like saying circle back or something, or or it's it's like a, it seems like a, a business world term. But when, uh-huh. when you talk about that, a term like that to students, especially, it's not saying like go out there and like, you know, get form some web of people. Like just, it's just meeting people and knowing them. And as, as obviously as, as long as you're not some kind of uh, disagreeable person that others don't want to be around, you know, the people, you know, and stay friendly with, you know, it can be helpful. Every single job I've had, and every position I've had, like through the forensic world, came from knowing people. And it's again, it's it's not like, oh, I knew them because, you know, my dad is a senator and he told you know what I mean? It's not like through connect like I met them because I went to school. And when I was at school, I met people there and I stayed friends with them and and that's how you meet people. And then that's just kind of how it happens. And so it's it's certainly uh, to me it's been one of the most valuable things is these sort of you know if if you want to use a term like mentor like mentor like friends who I've made and who've helped me one step from you know to the next yeah i can understand that completely i mean the the job that i have now i got completely because of well i knew i knew the people that worked there the people that i now work with and so that's how i got the job completely and the whole networking aspect. It's something that I'm very, I try to be very vocal about because you're right. This is how you, especially in a field, you know, like in, in well, forensics in general, but forensic anthropology, it seems like it's very small or, or yeah. at least narrow. Yeah. And so you've got to know people in, in the field and kind of around the field in order to get these opportunities. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, I mean, between undergraduate and my, my graduate program, I did four internships and several of them, 
you know, it's not like I was getting hired at this place at the end of the internship, but I, I became friends with people through it who I stayed in touch with. And even my last internship, which led to where I, where I wound up working, something that I also kind of tell my undergraduate students sometimes is, you know, you'll hear like the term right place at the right time. Yes, there are people who are in the, in the right place at the right time. And there's nothing you can do to do that. It's just the universe, like, you know, chaos swirling around. And it just so happens for some people. Um, But if there is a place that seems like it could be a right place or a what to you might be a good or right place, you can try and just stay, if possible, stay there until it's the right time. I mean, I you know, the final internship I did wound up being for like seven months. I did not intend it to be that long, but I knew thanks to, you know, the people that I'd become friends with, like, look, they're going to be hiring at some point. If you're already here, then you already know people. And so I just found ways to like, Hey, can I still come in one day a week? Can I still come in like stuff like that, you know? And so I guess there's a level of effort that, if you actually want to do something, people will will recognize. Uh, and and I see that now too, when sometimes helping to kind of pick people who seem like they're going to be good prospects to hire for, you know, whatever positions. And as far as asking about with anthropology, it certainly is rather narrow. I guess, you know, there are other fields in forensics that are pretty narrow too, even just being a medical examiner. I mean, I know the number nationwide is you know a couple hundred so it's one of those things where a lot of people know each other um and again a part of it is also i guess kind of going into something and trying to you know be clear that how interested you are or that you want to help or you want you know to do what you can to um be of of service let's say Sometimes I guess it can work out in one way or another. Okay. I like that. That's, that's really good advice. I, I want to kind of talk in, in general about forensic anthropology as far as like what it is and then sort of how it fits into kind of the overall forensic investigation. Yeah. So anthropology, right. The, the, is basically the study of people. And so that, overarching umbrella term then branches into a few different subfields um what most people think of as anthropology is would be socio-cultural anthropology so society and culture and that is kind of the more you know observing people in a culture or a society that is kind of specific in one way or another whether it be the, you know, the older idea of like, you know, civilizations that don't have contact with the Western world or something, or, or nowadays, at least to my understanding, it's more of these narrow subsets of cultures and societies, like people who are in a certain type of facet of social structure and what, uh, and then that actually kind of gets into a little, it, it's got ties in with a, a little bit, it seems like, um, of you know people who are maybe marginalized and stuff like that not always but that's just an idea to give someone like what to think you've also got like linguistic anthropology which obviously deals with um change and development of language and then you've got 
on kind of the other hand, what's called um, physical or biological anthropology. Physical and biological anthropology is then also broken down a little bit into like archaeology, which most people might have some idea of. So the physical remains of what cultures leave behind, like settlements, weaponry, stuff like that, and uh, what you can learn about their society from the way that they, I don't know, cooked or fought in wars and had settlements. Uh, You've got paleoanthropology, which is the study of basically the evolution of primates up to humans, and that is largely based on osteology, which is the study of skeletal biology. And there are other, you know, subsets there as well. Genetic anthropology, which obviously is a lot to do with evolution at the genetic level. And so what basically when you take the ideas, especially of osteology, of skeletal biology, and also archaeology a bit, the way that archaeologists go about an excavation in which you're trying to preserve information as well as possible because once you've disrupted something uh it's you can no longer put it back though it was you know uh you can never put something back in situ because the fact that you touched it it's no longer it no longer has that that kind of conceptual concept when you apply Mm -hmm. what we learn in those fields to forensic questions you get forensic anthropology so forensic anthropology is largely to kind of be sort of general is using the knowledge of skeletal biology as well as the techniques of like archaeology to apply to cases where either the the remains are unidentified and you're dealing with someone who's very decomposed or skeletal and what it is that you can still learn about someone from just their bones to construct, say, a biological profile, as we say. So it's one thing to tell law enforcement at a scene, yep, that's a human skeleton, you know, good luck. Like, obviously, that's great. Every missing human could be this. It's another to, through forensic anthropology, be able to say, okay, this is likely a... You know, if I'm for myself as an example, oh, this is likely a white male who's, you know, 35 to 45 and approximately, you know, five, eight to six feet tall. And it lets you narrow down the parameters to which law enforcement then has to consider as to who this unidentified person could be against missing persons. So that is one facet of it. Looking at skeletal and hard tissue trauma is also um, where we come into play at times on cases. Uh, A medical examiner, a forensic pathologist, who's going to be determining the cause of death, obviously is usually very uh, uh, skilled and attuned to the things that they look at. But sometimes they might want another set of eyes when it's dealing with determining like the timing of injuries, right? So if you've got someone who's got different fractures that are at different stages of healing, we might be asked to give an opinion on or or an analysis on aging those to figure out, especially if it's in like a young person that looks like patterned 
injuries that are occurring rather than a single accident or cases with, say, dismemberment, looking at tool marks and stuff on bone, all of these kinds of things that having a specialty on the, the, the anatomy of the skeleton and, again, the, the biology of the skeleton, the way that bone is going to respond to trauma as it heals, the way that different fractures can occur if it's a perimortem situation versus taphonomic defects caused by the movement of bones, you know, long after death. These are a lot of the kinds of things that we, uh, as a, as forensic anthropologists may look at on cases and perhaps the most common since we're the, the, the skeletal anatomists is simply how often you have to say that's not a human bone. Um, you know, I, it, all the time, all the time get cases where police call in a case of skeletal remains and, you know, oftentimes even just from a photo that I can ask them to text me from the scene, you can say like that, that's not a human femur. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, we can give you whatever kind of analysis you want on it, but it's not a dead human who's been uncovered by your dog or something. So those are kinds of, you know, the, the, the ways that forensic anthropology is applied in the modern forensic uh, apparatus uh, to to help with cases and to um, to get information from remains that otherwise might not be so obvious to um, visually or uh, you know and in more advanced ways um, examine. Okay, I see that. That's a very kind of thorough explanation. I, I like that. That's that's really interesting. Now, something else that you do, you're actually you, you teach forensic anthropology. I do. Yeah, uh, I've been teaching for almost um, ten years now to undergraduates. How did you get started in teaching? So this literally goes right back to what I was saying before. Uh, okay. My good friend uh, Gina Hart. She was. I, I met her through a an event for her students when I was in grad school, where they invite the local professionals to come as well. We just became friends. You know, and a lot of times, a lot of the people who are like good friends of mine from the forensic world, it's got nothing to do with forensic things. Like the reason we became good friends, you know, whether it be because we like similar music or, or stuff like that, or have similar personalities. Uh, and so at one point before I was doing the full-time position thing at a, at a medical examiner, uh, she was teaching a class and just was like, look, it doesn't really work with my schedule anymore, but I can, you know, recommend you if they want, if they ask who might be able to teach it. I'd never taught before other than giving like lectures to, to students, but I just like for the sake of having something professional on a resume, um, other than just school and internships, I just said, okay, sure. And that first year doing it, I mean, I remember it was like, eight hours a week I had to put into making all these lectures because they were making them from scratch. And it just is something that I, I guess do fairly okay with just in being able to stand in front of a room and, and talk. And so I just kept doing it and then wound up now like a decade later, still teaching. 
it's useful in addition to being like i said in the start something for my resume quote unquote it also is useful because it keeps you a bit sharper you know like when you're teaching someone something uh i think i always remember when i was in grad school um one of my professors saying that the the best way to learn something is to teach it to someone else or to have to teach it to someone else. So not just the memory aspect of, you know, every semester, okay, now I'm going over, you know, different components of determining the age at death from the pubic symphysis or something, not just that memory component of it, but having to find ways to explain it to students who you know, this is literally their introduction to the field. It helps it um, set in your mind better. And for me, at least personally, when you or if you wind up having to testify in trials, which obviously is a potential uh, if you're going into certain forensic fields, that certainly was helpful for me for that, to be able to talk to the jury like they're, like I'm you know, in professor mode to help them under ex- understand a what can otherwise be a perhaps fairly complex scientific topic that they likely have absolutely no uh, exposure to whatsoever before that. So to be able to have them understand it, but B to also be able to come off like you're not just this, you know, textbook scientist who's going to stand there and say things in a white coat that they don't understand, you know, to be able to talk to them and have them, you know, grasp that you are talking to them and trying to help them understand something. So that's been an extremely helpful thing for me as far as, as far as the testifying element goes, is, is this experience with teaching. And I, I mean, any, anyone who would have the opportunity I would say, no matter what forensic field you're doing, maybe no matter what field you're doing, if you have the opportunity, even just once or twice, to have to teach it to people, it's certainly going to help you in one way or another. And I've even had cases where I, like I remember one time I was, I had um, fetal skeletal remains and I had like a fragment. And if people aren't, you know, osteologists, um, a quick, a quick background of that. When you're very young, your skeleton is in many more fragment, not, not fragments as in broken, but your, your bones start from separate pieces that fuse together as you grow. So yeah. where the average adult has, you know, about 206 bones, when you're very young, that number is closer to 300 because, you know, your femur, the bone of your thigh is one bone as an adult but when you're a child it's actually got numerous fragments that fuse together and i've had cases where i'm looking at something like and just like off the top of my head just like what is this like what where i know this is a fragment of something and from having taught and had my students look at fragmentary pieces have it like suddenly click like oh i know what this is from having to you know teach about the, you know, let's say fragments of the temporal bone that fuse together later in life. So yeah, teaching is, is very useful in addition to, I mean, it can also just be fun and it gives you a good way to meet people who are going into the field. I mean, my 
I, I've had two former students of mine get hired. And that's also a pretty cool thing, personally. Yeah. Um, wow. So th- it gives you this, like, uh, it gives you, like, a this direct line to seeing people who are younger coming up that are, like, you know, oh, they're, at least if they're going to stay in the area, in the region, knowing um, if they are applying later on for something, that, oh, they're a pretty promising person to to perhaps pay attention to. So, yeah, it's it's very helpful in a lot of ways. Okay. I can see that. I mean, uh, like you've been saying, it's obviously helpful to the students because you're teaching them, but then you're also helping yourself sort of clarifying your own understanding. I, I like that. That's a, that's a good way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all right. So you're also part of the Northeast crime scene Institute. And I'm curious about this. Can you tell, can you tell me about this? What, what is it and what does it do? It's uh, it's basically like a training program for people in law enforcement and other, I, I guess, kind of criminal justice or forensic um, fields where, uh, but but largely law enforcement, I believe, where they go through um, this multi, multi weeks or months long um, courses, basically where they'll have like two days or taught by a forensic anthropologist on like a background on the field and then a mock clandestine grave recovery and then you know they'll also have days with a forensic odontologist or and so it kind of gives them this training to understand what these different specialties do and that's actually a really useful thing uh that i often tell people that even if you're not going to be say a forensic anthropologist knowing what forensic anthropologists do knowing what uh, you know, medical legal death investigators do knowing what any, anyone who's got a specialty in the forensic world, especially if you're in law enforcement, or if you're in one of the other realms of forensic specialty, having the best picture that you can of what other professionals do and what they need to do is very useful, you know, because I mean, just for example, think if you've got skeletal remains at a scene do you want the initial people there during recovery to just go, oh, let's dig it up and see what's going on? No, you want them to know, oh, wait a minute, we sh- the, the medical examiner can have an anthropologist come and, and oversee everything so that we're not losing information potentially if it's needed on a specific case. I think it's one of the most important things is for people to have training when they can about even if it's not going to be their specialty, but what other professionals in the field actually do rather than just like, okay, we give it to that lab and you know, they what wave a magic wand and give us information afterward. Like, you know, cause obviously that's not how things work. Um, right. And so, yeah. So I also have always been happy and eager to help in that kind of educational sense, uh, people who are already, in the field in other capacities to to give them some component of things and even i mean i also have in um experience as a as a death scene investigator i've done that and so with my kind of focus now being more on things like identifying people if you, you can impart to others who are not say anthropologists but they are death scene investigators like the information the steps the kind of vantage point that you want to have 
to keep just that one component of a any given case in mind, the identification component, it's it's going to make a it makes cases I don't want to say easier, but it makes them work in a, in a better way if if people have an idea of exactly how you should go about things to make someone else's component of it easier. But it also then just, you know, leads to you being able to know that you're doing as good of a job as you can with the the team that you're working with on on a given case. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Evan Bird. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I gotta tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh yeah, and while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. And now back to Evan Bird on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about your experience uh, in the field dur- during COVID. And I'm curious yeah. about that. If you can tell me, like, what was your role uh, throughout kind of the pandemic? Yeah, I, um, I mean, as a lot of us who are, you know, essential personnel for our, uh, where, wherever it is that we work in this field, you know, a lot of us, it was not possible to, to work from home in that most people don't have an autopsy room in their house. And if they did, the authorities would probably have questions, but anyway, (laughs) I um, hope so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when things started with that, I was, uh, very involved with the organization of this huge influx of decedents, uh, being a a mass fatality incident as it was basically. So I was dealing with the, the whole refrigerated truck thing. Like a lot of people did. I, um, had to oversee some of that, uh, with, you know, employees who were soldiers, not even in the forensic world. I mean, who, when they did actually an amazing job, but that was, um, uh, like, I mean, you had said a a once in a lifetime, once in a career event. And I can only hope that that's true because it was, you know, it was very unpleasant. I mean, you know, we weren't nurses in ERs getting, you know, having people cough in our face or something, but, especially before the vaccine in the first months, you know, we didn't know what the danger, the exposure was initially. We didn't even know if I remember the very start where we didn't even know, like, is, uh, is there a threat from these hundreds of bodies who, who died from it? Like, or that we might get exposed somehow. We had no idea. 
so it was extremely stressful in, in many ways. And uh, obviously seeing the ways that some people, you know, or a lot of people didn't take it maybe as seriously as the medical community would hope. Um, not that I'm calling myself part of the medical community, but that also added to the whole just like, you know, just shaking your head constantly. <laughs> like, this is a nightmare that we are not waking up from. It was very unpleasant. I still, when I have to see trucks, the refrigerated trucks like that, it's like, like there's like a, a very small portion of my mind where it's very like clockwork orange-ish where I'm like, it's like, oh God, there's one of them. Yeah, it, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy dealing with just that many. I mean, you know, it's different than other mass fatality incidents. When we plan for mass fatality incidents, um, which forensic anthropologists often are very involved with the planning for because if you're identifying remains or fragmentary remains of you know bone and stuff we're the ones who are gonna uh be helpful for a lot of that but when you plan for a mass fatality incident when you're thinking of something you know where it's a sudden event that you know kills a lot of people and how is your local apparatus going to handle it or if they're going to need you know demort or something to come in from the outside and help that's one thing it's different when it's like you know it's not a single event it's every day this one hospital had another 15 to 20 deaths and that goes on every day again and again and again and it like right. quickly like adds up so in some ways i guess it at least lets you i don't want to i guess i don't want to say prepare but it lets you like strategize while things are happening of what needs to be done. Um, but it's also something that I guess doesn't, or, you know, prior to this last few years, wasn't the way that you always would talk about it. Obviously there's always going to have been people planning for this sort of thing. I mean, the book spillover came out, what, almost 10 years ago. And it, like the first two chapters were just describing exactly what we've lived through now in the last few years. Um, right. so it's not like no one knew this was potentially gonna, gonna happen one day, but it's crazy. And even, even in the ways where it's not X number of people dying every day in your jurisdiction at hospitals who don't have room for bodies, the ways it's changed other components of, of this field are still there. You know, I mean, we used to, I used to have to meet with family. I'm have to, I'm not saying have to in a pejorative way, but you used to have to meet with a family all the time, right? To, to do an identification if they had to view photos of their loved oh, yeah. one. And then that immediately was like, wait, we're going to, we're just having the public walk in the building every day. And so that changes over to like, okay, how can we do this over zoom? How can we do these other things that, you know, used to seem so normal and now are like, uh, is this a threat to me? Is this a threat to if I'm going back home with exposure to something? So it's, you know, having been at that kind of ground level view of everything, it's, um, I mean, it's not what it was, you know, it's not wh where we were years ago and obviously, and thankfully, and to a large extent, thanks to the vaccination. Um, but it's, uh, it was, it was not pleasant. <laughs> I do not recommend, um, having to go through a global viral pandemic if you don't have to. Uh, especially as a professional, but, um, right. yeah, it, 
it's I mean it still is quite the experience to say that it was is a weird and confusing way to think about it yeah I think we're going to see kind of the effects and the changes you know not only in forensics but other probably a lot of other areas of medicine and just you know a culture in general we're going to see the effects of this for probably a lot of years yeah Uh, i mean i don't imagine many young children listen to this podcast (laughs) um so anyone of our kind of ages of people who are adults right now um uh, it's just weird it's weird enough and especially in the forensic world to have gone now through now two like seismic events that changed everything um socially and forensically you know 9-11 as far as how to approach mass fatality at that level and now this it's you know i mean even that i mean the way that that you approach in in some offices uh in large metropolitan areas you know we still have things that that are now that were forever changed how you do even kind of day-to-day approaching you know whatever it can be like the way uh remains are stored or tracked or things like that where when you have to think about it in a huge disaster sense it kind of shows you ways that maybe they can things can be more efficient on a, on a practical daily level. But yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully our generation has in the forensic world has maybe, uh, gotten our fill of these mass mass situations. But obviously just saying that makes you realize it's likely not the case. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's scary to think about. Um, so you, you mentioned working with like local authorities, you know, it's for mass fatality events and, and other things, but you've also done some consultant work with federal agencies throughout your career. Yeah. There's been times I've had to, um, had to work on cases for like, um, clandestine grave recovery and such at that with, with, uh, out, you know, agencies above the state level. And, you know, obviously that's interesting. And it's, it's, it's in some ways for me, it was always just like, it's not that different than if you have, you know, a potential clandestine grave in a, let's say regular County examination uh, or investigation. It's just kind of the parameters of what their investigation entails as to who's going to be involved. But it's also interesting very much to see the way, you know, different agencies at different levels kind of run and approach things. I, every time I, something that's got nothing to do with uh, anything forensic, for some reason, anytime I work on cases like that, my shoes get ruined to this day. I have no idea why, but I've had it happen, happen multiple times. Every time okay. the shoes I'm that's wearing wind up destroyed. I don't know why. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a coincidence, but it's become like a uh-huh. meme in my life. Um, and I've got <laughs> friends at certain agencies where I'm like, just the fact that they're calling me, I just, like start with like do i have to go buy new shoes again but um yeah again just the meeting people and again just getting to see people and the way that they work at different let's say levels of county or state or or uh above that it's interesting to see the the differences and similarities and such all right Uh, would you say that you've had a, a like highlight 
it, okay. If I asked you like what, what was been the highlight of your career so far, is, is there like a, a situation that you could pick? I mean, I imagine maybe COVID might be up there just with the, for the maybe novelty of it, but is there something you'd call a highlight? For me, the things that have always, I guess, felt the most important are scenarios that involve, you know, whether it be, you know, an investigation where the decedent is very young and obviously you're hopefully helping get justice for someone who's helpless like that. Or even actually one time I had to to look at a bunch of, um, a bunch of ivory. I was, um, because, you know, ivory is tea is the, the teeth of elephant tids. And so that was pretty interesting to help law enforcement, like, um, kind of make this, uh, I mean, I don't know what happened with the case beyond, uh, my examination of it, but so something like that, we're helping kind of help obviously not helping an animal the animal was dead but with something as terrible as like the ivory trade to kind of help you know there hopefully be some level of justice things like that are have often come out feeling pretty um i guess because you know i don't want to say oh it feels special as if other things are just run of the mill but when every single day of the year is these other kinds of more commonplace experiences, even if to a normal person, it's crazy, like nightmare scenario situations. I mean, we get used to these things, right? Because this is what we do every day. So when you have something where it's like a little different like that, and also hopefully leading to um, the best outcome that you could want in such a bad scenario, those situations have, have always been pretty interesting as far as also like oh, the whole COVID thing. I mean, I was like being thanked by the military for, for what you're doing is when you're not in the military. That's a very strange experience. Um, yeah, I bet. yeah, where I was just, that was one of those, like, where am I right now? And <laughs> whose life am I experiencing? Cause I could have never thought this would happen, but so yeah, you know, odd things come up and are notable at times, but also it's, I guess, important to, and I would think most people in forensics do kind of keep in mind that like the stuff that you see and do every day is not normal to most people. No, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I can, I can totally understand that. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit here. And cause I know one of your other main interests is horror movies and mm-hmm. you have a Instagram page called the corpse review where yes. you, and you critique forensic procedures in horror movies, yeah. which is which is pretty interesting and, and kind of unique. And I'm curious about this. How did you get started doing this? So the idea for the Corpse Review, I, I was not trying to think of something to do on social media. It's not like I was like, oh, what can my page be? Let me think of it. It was, as I'm sure other people who deal with autopsy and death investigation – experience you know i've always just when you see something on tv whether it be in like you know a crime show or obviously when you're talking about fake corpses horror movies and zombie movies and zombie shows and everything having that experience of just like that doesn't look right and just getting like worked up over like no this doesn't look right that's not what that should look like i was always like that it it's you know, cannot be easy to watch something like that with me. I'm well aware of that fact. 
And I was, as I've said on the page, what happened was just, I was rewatching the show Treme once, which I love the show Treme. It's such a good show, which was the follow-up to by the, the, um, the people who did The Wire. And they there's a there's a corpse in an episode and it's post Katrina Tremay takes place in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and I remember like I actually paused the TV because I just wanted to like look at it to like see what they did and like I said before um, one of the earlier ideas I had for like things I was interested in maybe to pursue as a career was doing like special effects work or something just because it was always something I paid attention to and and liked and I just had this idea of like I'm gonna just I'm going to find a way to make other people listen to me rant about these things. And so, uh, and I've, you know, I have friends who have other presences on uh, social media. Uh, Dr. Uh, Marion Hamill is a very good friend of mine and she's very um, experienced with that. And yeah. so I just was like, I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to make something. And it immediately was like, I guess I'll make, maybe I'll make an Instagram page. I didn't even have Instagram before that. I don't think. And initially it was just like using one or two photos of said corpse from whatever movie or show and kind of just um, talking about the ways that it, it was um, either really unrealistic or also trying to commend things that they get right. And now it's morphed into me making these, you know, multi-slide long, you know, kind of mini education things because i always try to include a bit of you know educational uh, for lack of better term aspect that okay it's one thing to just say to, to non-forensic people oh uh this corpse from let's say the last thing i i think i did was uh the the zombie musical anna and the apocalypse and one of them i'm talking about how yellow the eyes are on one of them and they're not on the other and then somehow it winds up being three frames just talking about like John Dennis, <laughs> like going on about stuff like that. So I kind of try to get a little, make it a little bit of like a, a semi-educational forensic outlet as well to, you know, if this is what this movie is making me think of looking at this one fake corpse explaining to people a bit about what it is and you know so let's say tash noir you know the darkening the bands that you get on the eyes if i just start mm -hmm. saying that that phrase no one knows what i'm talking about unless they're in the forensic world so explain it a bit and give people like i said with you know um kind of the experience of teaching give them like a kind of generalized way to understand what you mean and therefore kind of go like oh yeah if zombie like why would zombies blink okay so okay so zombies aren't blinking but now if zombies aren't blinking why aren't their eyes drying out stuff like that and so i kind of went went from there to to this like whatever it is this uh, i guess humorous and semi educational way to talk about fake dead bodies and i've had some people from who are in those industries contact me I've become friends with some of them and that's been awesome. And even some people on sometimes who've worked on things that I I'm a huge fan of, like the movie, the, the movie psycho Gorman. I talked to people who worked on that and that's like one of my favorite movies I've seen in many recent years. And so I'm always happy when people kind of ask for my opinion of like, you know, I've had some professionals 
they'll send me photos of what they're working on and say like, okay, if the idea is, I don't know, this person drown or something, what can I do to kind of make it a little more realistic? And I, that's been a lot of fun trying to um, give input on that sort of thing. It's just a very odd <laughs> idea that I guess I came to um, because those are my favorite things. And actually, because I always, I've always liked, when I was younger, I never even used the term horror movies. I always just called things monster movies when I was little. And I, since I was like eight, I've always been like, that was my thing. Um, okay. Like I remember seeing like puppet master and like creep show and stuff when I was probably way too young to see these things. But, and it just always was my favorite thing. If you, if you came to my house, you'd be forgiven for thinking that I like have a literal religious devotion to Frankenstein's monster. Because just like, if I see something with Frankenstein's like, don't have a choice, I have to buy it. And so, yeah, the corpse review has been fun and hopefully somewhat um, educational, I guess, in as well as entertaining to people. And people now, I always get people like giving me suggestions of movies or shows they want me to cover. And that's really fun too. Okay. Um, so, but it's a lot of just like whatever, what, if I think something's funny, I just start writing it down quickly while watching something. And that's like, Oh, okay. I'm going to talk about this. Even just yesterday I was rewatching Hellraiser and I was just like, I hadn't previously thought about doing it on, on corpse review. And then I, I just like had this specific idea about a specific thing that I'm just like laughing internally about. And it's like, well, okay, here's the next idea. And so it's just this weird way to, to tie together monsters and forensics and fake corpses and zombies and all of that and i guess trick people into learning something about forensics along the way maybe well there's there's nothing wrong with that having having people learn especially when it's you know there's misconceptions about forensics because of these movies and tv shows and so it's good to kind of set the record straight at least a little bit yeah, so you know, we use the term the CSI effect, referring to TV yes. shows that have given the public a distorted perception of what forensics is and does. The the common saying that you hear people say is not everything is not every case is wrapped up in half an hour, um, the way TV shows would make you think. But yeah, you know, it's not just educating people because it's fun, which that is the main idea. But yeah, you know, juries are made up of the public. And there are cases where the jury's misconceptions about what forensics should or shouldn't be able to do, like, has led to unfortunate scenarios. Now, I don't think that, you know, me making jokes about the frozen body in whatever movie, or when I'm doing like The Simpsons, like skeletons on The Simpsons not adding the right number of bones. You know, um, not like I think I'm bettering the world necessarily. It's, It's largely for entertainment at that point. Like you just said, like any ways in which people can have a better understanding of of the way postmortem investigation actually works is obviously good. And not only when you think of it in cases like that, but something else just most people don't have a lot of experience with decomposing bodies. Like even if you've been to a funeral and seen, you know, a deceased loved one when people are unfortunate enough to like discover 
a, a relative or a friend who's been deceased for a while, that can be pretty traumatic, A, because obviously it's a shocking experience and very upsetting to someone. But mm-hmm. the not understanding some of the things they see can lead to some pretty unfortunate like conclusions people jump to. You know, for example, when you do death investigation, obviously if someone's been deceased and they're face down or something, and it looks like they've got um, blood coming out of their nose, like it could be purged fluid. It could be because they collapsed and hit their nose. But to a person, a relative who finds them, it's why was their face bleeding? What happened? Like it immediately becomes suspicious and a cause for panic or anxiety to them. And so obviously, again, it's not like I think I'm going to make society society want to know about decomposition. Um, but, you know, ways that people can better understand something can only be can only be useful. And if it's through me ranting about how Laura Palmer on Twin Peaks should not look the way that she does, maybe that helps someone. I don't know. But it, it is uh, it has been a fun thing to to kind of approach in that way and to tie it together again to make yourself think in terms of how do I explain something in a way for people to to kind of understand it if that's not their background or something like that. Okay. Yeah. That, that's great. I, I like that a lot. All right, all right. So last question then. If someone listening is say a high school student, college student, and they're interested in forensic anthropology, what would be your advice to them? Well, there's kind of two avenues of advice. One is the same things everyone else is going to tell you, but that's because they're true, is that, look, you probably need to go to grad school um, and you should have, and, and just saying you need to go to grad school is kind of simplistic. If you're an undergraduate or in high school, saying, quote, you need to go to grad school is not just like ordering them. It's do what you can do now to make it easier for you to get into a program you want to do, whether that be internships, if you can do them while you're an undergrad, um, an honors thesis, if your school or your, your department allows it, like do things like that to show how serious you take um, a, a certain field. With forensic anthropology, something that people are always going to say is, it like you know have a realistic uh, view of like the job market of it you know there are not a overwhelming number of forensic anthropology positions because it's you know it, it's not like you need as many of them as you do death scene investigators for a given office people sometimes will just tell students like oh be aware you're not going to get a job in it which obviously might not be necessarily exactly true or it might be a a simplification but in addition to having a realistic view that it is more uh narrow of a field and that it can be more difficult for lack of a better term to maybe wind up doing it full time as the only thing you do the thing that i tell students is keep in mind therefore different avenues of forensics that can maybe tie together with that. If you think that you just want to be an anthropologist and that's the only thing that you've considered, and by all means, go as far as you need to to just do that thing. But sometimes I meet students where, you know, they they kind of slot into death investigation first. I mean, I personally, before I was doing forensic anthropology cases, was, was a death investigator. 
um, at my office. Because sometimes in the forensic world, for some people, it's more that you want to get into the world first and then, you know, hopefully progress in an area that you want to um, Mm -hmm. wind up in. So as we said earlier, it's not like you just give someone a blueprint of this is exactly how you do it. And then you get a job at the end. Like, yeah, there's difficulties and complications, but I also kind of don't like just discouraging people outright. Like if you really want to do something, you'll probably find a way to somehow do it or something similar to it to, to some, to some component of a, of a, an extent. So yeah, the, the education element is of course kind of your primary uh, way, way to start. And then, I mean, as I said before, if, if you've got ways through having met people, having done internships um, to put in, if, if it takes extra work that you might have to do or extra effort, it can be useful. I never thought or was like, happy to sign my name on the line <laughs> like you're going to do four different internships across the next six years or whatever but you know that's sometimes you know can be what it takes and i think one of the most useful things if you want to go in that direction is try to get in touch with people who actually do it to ask them questions which can be daunting for someone um yes but I mean, introducing yourself and just saying, I'm interested in what you do. And I'm, I'm really interested on in knowing a little more. Unless the per- unless you happen to be approaching like the most curmudgeonly person that there is, like someone saying this to me is just like, oh, cool. Well, like, oh, I want to therefore help you however I can with information or such. So there is a bit of, I guess, outgoingness that ironically you might have to use for someone who's choosing to spend all their time around skeletons. But um, that's just the way it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's good. I, I like that. That's, that's really good advice. Evan, this has been a really interesting conversation. I enjoyed learning more about you learning more about your work. Uh, so Evan bird, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Nikki Johnson as she talks about her experience as a forensic photographer. Here's a quick listen. For anybody listening who maybe they're interested in a career as a forensic photographer, mm-hmm. what what kind of advice would you have for them? I would say definitely, you know, make sure that you are just forget about anything you've seen on TV or media, anything at all. Forget about it. Basically, make sure that you're, you know, understand that you're working as a team. Make sure that you're good at communicating uh, your interpersonal skills. You got to make sure, you know, you got to communicate with your assistants and the technicians and the doctor. You've got to make sure that you are willing to work long hours. I don't. I don't think I've had a regular lunch hour in a while, a few months, um, basically, because until the autopsies are done, I'm, that's that's when I'm done. And well, I'm done with that aspect of the job. You've got to understand, uh, you know, learn anatomy, but also understand that you are. You have to respect the case and everyone around it but you just you know just get in shoot and then kind of step back but always be observant of everything that's going on around you you can hear more from nikki johnson in episode 91 all right big thanks to evan bird 
you know, he had so much great advice for anybody that's interested in getting into forensic anthropology. The, the networking tips were great and just kind of how to plan out your educational path and sort of your career path. And so all of that was really, that, that was a lot of gold. And I hope that's really useful to a lot of people. And also his experience working through the beginning part of the COVID pandemic. Man, that was so interesting. I'm going to be very curious to see how forensic procedures change and, well, procedures in a lot of different areas as well as a result of the COVID pandemic. So thanks to Evan again for sharing his story. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. And hey, check out the Corpse Review on Instagram. It's a fun little kind of tongue-in-cheek look uh, at forensics as applied to horror movies. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.